Hello, and welcome to the Learning Laborers Podcast, where we are passionate about integrating biblical scholarship with ministry. Well, hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Learning Laborers. And uh, I just want to, before I introduce this episode, I just want to ask you uh, briefly, if you could um, review or rate the podcast, that goes a long way in just helping people find us in the algorithm and um, things like that. Or if you could share on social media the episode or one of your favorite episodes, that would go uh, a really long way. We have listeners who are tuning in and it's great. Uh, but we want to uh, expand our reach if we can, just to help more laborers um, incorporate learning into their ministry. And uh, we think it's it's an important work to do, and we could use your help in spreading the word. But today, uh, on this episode, we have the esteemed, distinguished guest, uh, guest Matthew McBirth. Matt and I are in a cohort together at Northern Seminary. We're doing the same program, a doctorate of ministry in New Testament context. So I've gotten to know Matt, and um, he's a brilliant, smart, kind, gracious dude. And uh, we have a great conversation about a topic that um, he's been able to explore regarding Second Temple literature and the Apocrypha. And uh, we just have a great conversation about that topic. He's currently the professor of Bible and ministry at Ozark Christian College. So he interacts a lot with college students and uh, brings that perspective um, to the conversation. So without further ado, uh, let's get into the interview and the episode. And as always, thanks for listening. Well, uh, welcome to the podcast, Matt. It's good to, to have you with us. Yes. Glad to be here, guys. Yeah, we're excited to get to chat with you about this topic, Second Temple, Jewish literature, more specifically, maybe the Apocrypha, um, Pseudepigrapha, all this good stuff. I'm not sure, I'm not sure all our listeners, how familiar they'll be with each of these different kind of groups of literature, and so maybe we can get some helpful descriptions and definitions along the way. But before we jump into that, we'd love just to hear a little bit from you about um, your role there at Ozark Christian College, um, what you do there, what you teach there, uh, maybe a little bit of your academic journey, the things you're studying, just kind of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, like I said, happy to be on here, guys. Thanks for the invite. Um, yeah, I work at Ozark Christian College, which is um, a Bible college located in Joplin, Missouri. And uh, I teach uh, primarily in the areas of Bible and ministry. Um, and so my Bible classes uh, primarily pertain to like interpretation. How do we interpret the Bible? Um, and so I teach freshmen, sophomores, uh, juniors, and seniors um, on that from intro to uh, a class called Critical Perspectives on Scripture, where we dive into higher yeah. criticism and how we approach the Bible. Of course, with all of that, uh, we talk about uh, the background of the Old Testament and New Testament, which um, makes us dive into other Jewish literature around the time um, of, of those collections of books. And so I've been teaching here now for, um, gosh, about four years um, teaching here. Um, I work with 18 to 22-year-olds, which is a lot of fun. Um, and so 
Uh, they ask really good questions. Uh, sometimes they don't think they are, but it's questions that sometimes I've never wrestled with before and it makes me do it. So I, I really enjoy that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I went to Ozark actually for my undergrad and, and got okay. my Bachelor of Arts here. Um, went on to get an MA from Duke Divinity School and then took a brief, you know, just kind of uh, rest and then went to dive into my doctorate of ministry uh, program at Northern Seminary. So that's currently what I'm doing right now, studying New Testament context and hopefully we'll be finishing up with the next year or two. Mm. Yes, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And most of the so the students that are you teaching in your classes are most of them preparing to go into vocational ministry. Is that kind of the track most of them are on, or is there? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. So um, we are an institution that most of the students that come here they desire to be pastors or ministers in mm. some capacity, and so um, many of them do see themselves being like in a church located ministry. Um, but some see themselves doing like a nonprofit work. Um, some see themselves doing mission work, um, either um, to different parts of the country or around the world. Um, some do see themselves going into just being a teacher or a nurse. Um, but predominantly, it's going to be preachers, uh, student ministers, children's pastors, um, and regardless of what they're wanting to do, they do all see themselves doing ministry, which hmm. is pretty cool. And so we do tell them, hey, wherever, wherever you're going, whatever you desire to do, whatever God's call is uh, right now in your life, uh, we're doing ministry. Um, that normally looks like church-located ministry, um, but it can be it can be various. Right. That's great that you've got that opportunity to to teach them, to give them skills and tools for how to open up the Word and to understand it, to teach it, to let it impact their ministry. That's that's really great and cool to hear that you're also at the same time um, increasing in your knowledge of the Word and you're and you're continuing your studies. Um, so, what maybe yeah. just briefly tell us what what are you uh, focusing your research on for your doctorate? What kind of topic are you? Are you leaning into? Yeah, so I'll give you just a brief kind of narrative to how I got to studying what I wanted to study for my doctorate. Um, and so I have a huge passion for uh, church unity and it being reflected uh, with people from different um, ethnicities and backgrounds being completely one, as we see, mm. um, especially in the New Testament, but of course alluded all the way throughout the Old Testament. Um, and so of course, that's difficult um, to actually actualize. And so I've been living in uh, the multi-ethnic church world for a while now of just how do we make this happen? And I became a little bit um, frustrated with some of the language that people were using to figure out how to make this happen. Yeah. And I don't have to go into the details of what the language was, but it seemed like we were trying to take things from um, the social sciences and kind of baptize them huh. into the Christian church and then utilize them. And so I thought, you know, that's that's fine. But, you know, the early church did this. Hmm. They were attempting to do this. Now, I don't think they had, you know, it all together. That clearly, we have the epistles of Paul trying to get this going and <laughs> having problems. Um, so I, I tell my students, hey, it wasn't like they were perfect at it, but they were trying to do it um, because they had Jews and Gentiles uh, communing together. And so I said, what was their language? Hmm. What did they utilize? What were their practices? And so um, during my master's degree, I kind of just 
stumbled upon this um, idea of um, hospitality being a bigger deal um, to the uh, New Testament church and their time, honestly, not just the church itself. Um, and that was their way of framing what Jesus did and how they could all be one family. And so I didn't, I didn't know exactly what that looked like, uh, but I was like, I want to study hospitality in the New Testament world. And so I, mean, I reached out to my current advisor, uh, asked him if this would be something that he could help me out with. And he said, yes. And so then I applied within about a few months, I found out I was starting it. Uh, matter of fact, it was, I was applying for the year after. Um, so like, I didn't think I was actually gonna be starting until 2022, I think it was. Um, but I got a message from the admissions like, Hey, we can actually start now. We can start you right <laughs> yeah. now. And I, oh, well. My daughter is just born, um, but sure, let's do it. Like, <laughs> so, so my uh, so that's a little bit of narrative. But so I've been studying um, the world and the cultures uh, surrounding the New Testament, mm. trying to understand what they thought about hospitality, what were the codes of hospitality, and how I believe ultimately Jesus takes hospitality. Um, Maybe radicalized might be too strong of a word, but I think they would have seen what he was doing was pretty radical, mm -hmm. um, really changing the world upside down. And I think the the apostles and the church just saw what he was doing and they were like, okay, if he did that, we have to start living differently. And that's why they see themselves as, again, separate ethnicities, separate cultures, and yet now one family. And so... I'm trying to capture that, um, understand what that looked like back then so that we can um, do it today, re-envision re it for, for the church today. Yeah, that's exciting and such a, such a powerful uh, topic to, to get to explore more, the hospitality. And like you were saying, part of that journey is studying the background of the Jesus movement because to, to know that what Jesus was doing was so exceptional and powerful you kind of have to know what was the typical like rules of hospitality what 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 did people normally do and to learn that we have to kind of step outside the bible look at other evidence yeah. and so i know you've shared with us before that part of that journey included studying other literature from the time of jesus and maybe shortly before the time of jesus literature that we kind of refer to in the academic world as second temple jewish literature yeah and so I don't know, maybe, maybe you could give us a little, like a brief overview of what is that? What is Second Temple Jewish literature? What kind of books are included in that kind of broad topic? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, with my, with my studies, um, I first began by wanting to, there, I guess there's two different broad, so even to go even a little bit um, higher up with the categories, there's, of course, Roman and Greek culture, and then there's Jewish culture. That's going to be what the right. church is wrestling with. And so I did dive into um, Greco-Roman literature on hospitality and seeing even how it's different from how Jewish people thought about hospitality. A lot of things in common, but um, some differences. And so then but I began by looking at Jewish um, literature just because that is Jesus's context. And so that's going to be reflecting a little bit more of his world. Sure. And so that means you have to dive into Second Temple Jewish literature. Um, this is, yeah, it's, it's kind of uh, the, the phrase is a little bit weird because it actually encapsulates um, literature that is uh, written um, after the Second Temple is is built. So after... 
Um, the Israelites come back um, from uh, Persia. Of course, they're still underneath Persian rule. Mm-hmm. They're able to um, reconstruct their temple. We see this, of course, in Ezra, or in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we start getting literature um, post this event. And it continues, honestly, past the destruction of this temple. So we actually do include... Um, things post um, 70 CE, which is going to be when that second temple is destroyed by Rome. Um, that's going to be why we still kind of include um, even the Mishnah um, and Josephus in this. Okay. But it's kind of about 400 years, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more than 400 years of literature. And there's a ton of stuff within this. And so um, yeah. just big, broad things. Uh, you have just different types of people writing. Um, you have people who are super academic Jewish Greek thinkers though, like a guy named um, Philo who is writing from Alexandria in in Egypt. Um, You have someone like Josephus who is again Jewish, but he is writing for a Roman audience. And then you also have um, just Jewish literature writing to Jewish audiences. Mm. And that's gonna be where you start seeing um, these other collections of books like the Qumran um, community scrolls and um, you start seeing things like the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha. And so these are just collections of books. It wasn't like someone set out to, I'm going to make Second Temple <laughs> Jewish literature. Right. But it's just, <laughs> this is a this is a, a span of time in all the Jewish texts mm-hmm. that are written during that time that are not included in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament. Right. But the common the commonality is the is the is the range of time and then who is writing it and it's gonna be Jewish people post the the making of the Second Temple. Yeah. So it's kinda like if we were to say like um Victorian English literature. Exactly. So, literature written mm-hmm. in the time of in the Victorian era by by English authors. Exactly. And that's, I think that's interesting. I know when I first started being exposed to this literature, I was surprised at how much of it there was. Because I think, you hear the refrain a lot, like 400 years of silence, 400 years of silence. Like, um, which in the sense of like, um, you know, at least as a Protestant, not seeing that there's scripture being written in this time period, but there was all kinds of stuff being written, like Jewish scholars, Jewish thinkers, I mean, they were writing all kinds of literature, amazing literature. I mean, with a lot of different t- types of genres. So I know I was blown away at how much there was because um, I had never been exposed to it or encouraged to read it, um, Yeah, which I get because, you know, like growing up in like a youth group, it's hard enough to get <laughs> students to like read their Bible sometimes. Yeah, read the Bible <laughs> at least. It's yeah. kind of a good first step. Um, but as you do become more familiar with it and you want more of that background, it becomes really helpful to see like, oh, yeah. these were the kinds of categories people were thinking with. These were the events that happened between, you know, the building of the second temple and when Jesus came. And technically, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but the New Testament is considered second temple Jewish literature. It has to be. Uh-huh. It, ha- it would have to be because of the range. Um, yeah. Definitely some of these New Testament books are written before the temple's destroyed. Um, of course, they're talking about things that take place before the temple is destroyed in 70 CE. Um, and so I think we would have to include the New Testament yeah. um, in Second Temple Jewish literature. And, and, and to your point of calling it, yeah, the 
the 400 years of silence. It's, <laughs> I tell my students, it's the, it is, I put in parentheses, not so silent years. It's, <laughs> yeah, that's good. It, it's silent because they're saying there's no more prophet speaking a word of God, right? right. And so that's why we would call this 400 years of silence, which is helpful because I think that helps us understand why the gospels can't help but begin by talking about John the Baptist and declaring mm. a word right. from the Lord. Right. And that, oh, here is now a prophet speaking. We haven't had this in a while, it seems like, right? So so I think that 400 years of silence is a little bit helpful, um, but it is not helpful in the sense of nothing's going on. There's right. a lot of stuff going on just historically. Yeah. Um, a lot of upheaval taking place for the Jewish people in that I don't think you can understand what the common Jewish person thinks hmm. during whenever Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. What does the common Jewish person think whenever he's talking to them? I don't think you can know that if you don't know the history um, that's taking place between the Old Testament and New Testament. And we learn that history through these books and we learn the culture through these books. Um, and so I think for my studies, go back to the original question. I, I dove in particular into the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha. I looked a little bit at, at Philo and Josephus as they talked about the Old Testament a little bit, but um, I really wanted to see what were people who are closer to the time of Jesus uh, talking about, and in particular hospitality, and they talked about it quite a bit. Yeah. So there's they 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 see hospitality as being um, a virtuous act that. Um, God wants them to do for a reason. And so they have their reasons for doing that. Um, and I can go into that maybe later on. Um, and so I started, com- I wanted to compare what was their thoughts on what hospitality was for? And then hmm. what does Jesus say hospitality is for? And how does he utilize hospitality and then see the differences? And I think it helps us understand even why certain people like some of the Pharisees and religious leaders get so upset with him of he's known for eating with uh, tax collectors and sinners. Like this is just what he's known for. And so in that moment, hospitality and table fellowship is brought up as one of their main indictments against Jesus. So um, so if I, just uh, to go a little bit more into it, um, since that's second temple Jewish literature, we're talking about the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha. Um, these are just going to be... S- smaller collections of books um, and they are separate from each other Um, but the difference would be that the Apocrypha is included um, in the Catholic Bible for the Old Testament Mm -hmm. and so um, I believe it's you can correct me if I'm wrong on this but I think I've counted that there's seven books um, of the Apocrypha and then there's also some additions to some other Old Testament books like the book of Daniel in the book of Esther. Um, Pseudepigrapha is going to be a lot of books, um, more than, like, way more than seven. And it's called Pseudepigrapha uh, because of it's, it's written, it says it's written by someone who were positive that person did not write it. So, pseude meaning falsely attributed, uh, grapha coming from Greek graphe, meaning books writings and so it's falsely attributed writings and so you will find for example so a book that i looked at for this depicted was the testament of abraham so you could look at that in the face value and be like oh 
so this is Abraham right like it comes across like Abraham's writing this no Abraham's been long dead he's, <laughs> he's dead so he ain't writing this but yeah but it's someone who is uh, trying to get into the tradition of Abraham to the thinking of Abraham and uh, speak as him if you will no right. but this is why I tell my students no one thought Abraham wrote this book no one thought this they're they're, right. they're using his name as like an authority uh-huh. um, and as a, as a hey we're gonna be talking about things pertaining to Abraham sure so that's going to be how I would distinguish the apocrypha from the suit the pseudopigrapha sure so it's not not setting out to trick people not setting out to say well I'm gonna make people think this is written by Abraham it's intense a literary yeah. device of intentionally taking on the voice of Abraham and people mm-hmm. understood that's what was going on correct exactly and that's yeah I because I, people begin to get worried they're like are they lying and like no 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 you're now we're getting into intentions and we're getting into motivations and hmm. you just again they know Abraham's dead no one's over here thinking maybe he's possibly alive like I don't know if this is still a thing about you <laughs> growing up I'm really into rap music and there is always this theory that Tupac Shakur never died and uh, he's somewhere out in a remote island right. still making music and that's why we still get some of his music every now and then yeah and it's like no dude's dead yeah <laughs> alright dude's dead uh, and even that's not good right because that's, that's like a, a conspiracy they don't think they're not trying to cons- like they're not making a conspiracy that Abraham's still alive or Job right. like there's the testament of Job but they're not saying Job is still alive or the testament yeah. of the patriarchs and so they're not lying but to your point there Denver they're getting into the voice. They're getting into the tradition. Um, and they're going to be talking about, it's almost like, I think sometimes they're saying, what would this person tell us right now if they were alive? Yeah. If Abraham was here right now, what would he want us to know? If Job was here right now, what would he want us to know? Mm-hmm. Now, again, it doesn't mean that's actually what Abraham would say but they're just thinking in that way and so that's why it becomes a fascinating thing because it allows you to get into what they're wondering about what what questions are pertinent to them and what they think are the right answers to those questions and so they just do it through other names yeah that's really helpful well it's interesting i was just doing some work on um second peter for our church and that's one of the arguments that's made based on kind of looking at pseudopigraphic writings of the second temple is you have this genre of testament where you could um, richard baca makes this argument about second peter to to look at second peter through this lens of a testament genre that it's actually peter kind of um his community after him kind of writing this testament literature (laughs) but the only reason he kind of makes that claim is because we have those background documents from the second temple time that say hey is this maybe what's going on here and you can kind of compare and start to see some things that were normative to them about writing letters and testaments that maybe we're not taking into account and things like that. That's like one, uh. one of those examples of something, you know, you can kind of carry into how it affects how we interpret the Bible a little bit. Most definitely. Yeah. Uh, there is there. And again, there's this bit of, Oh, but so does that mean, Second Peter shouldn't be part of the New Testament and because it's not written by Peter. And, and I talked to my students about this of saying, hey, let's let's really 
understand what our theology of the Bible is mm. and why we include certain books in and certain books not in. Um, and at the end of the day, it is not because Peter wrote first Peter that we include it in our Bibles, like hmm. or into our new Testament. We believe that, um, it's from God. And so that's why we include it. And so, and again, there's intricacies with that. And, um, I think they have a lot of criteria that, that they, they are working with. Um, but it's not because a person wrote it and this person's awesome. And that's why we include it in or that right. we shouldn't include it in. And so I, I think people will begin to like get scared of, oh, but if Peter didn't write second Peter, which I'm not saying, I mean, Peter very well could have written it, right? right? Totally. Um, but if he did not, I don't think that should cause us to be fearful that we don't have the right books in right. our New Testament or Old Testament. Yeah. Um, we should have other criteria than just holding it to a certain person. Because if that was the case, Paul wrote a lot. And we know he wrote more than 13 letters because he right. talks about that. And we don't include those other letters in our New Testament. So it's not because a person did it. There's something else going on here. Yeah. Or Hebrews, right? We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Yeah. But somehow it's it's in our New Testament. All four of the Gospels are anonymous. Yeah. Don't know who they are. Like in the sense that they don't tell, they don't say who they are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's where I think like leaning into this this topic is really good for just establishing, especially when you're talking with college students, like these basic questions of why are the books that are in our Bible in our Bible? Yeah. Like that's I think you know, the question of why isn't this second temple literature, the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha scripture, mm -hmm. and these books are. Mm -hmm. So how do you, I mean, yeah. you already kind of unraveled some of that, <clears throat> but what are some other things that are important to kind of responding to that question, I guess? Yeah. Well, let, let me, let me give this answer. And, and if it doesn't answer your immediate, please definitely feel free to follow back up with it. But let's just deal with, yeah, why, why isn't the Apocrypha part of our Protestant Bible? Because this is the big debate uh, if we're going to talk about the Apocrypha being included or not, because the Catholic uh, Church does include the Apocrypha, and Eastern Orthodox tradition includes other books too, right? Hmm, so yeah. we we are maybe somewhat more weird um, that we don't include <laughs> the pro or we don't include the Apocrypha um, in our in, in our um, Old Testament. So the Apocrypha is it seems to be written. Again, um, maybe not all of the Old Testament books, but written later. And it is only the only reason that we have the Apocrypha is because it is it comes along with the Septuagint. The Septuagint is going to be the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. We so that means we only have the Apocrypha because some Jewish people, when they were translating the Old Testament, um, also included within this collection of the Septuagint also included the Apocrypha in it. Hmm. And so that's going to be one of the primary reasons why the Catholic Church includes it. Of course, there was debate about, about this, um, but it eventually happens and it's included in the Latin Vulgate. Um, but we don't include it because we don't have any um, list or collection of the Hebrew Bible, including the Apocrypha in it, right? So written in Hebrew um, and seen as also part of these 39 books or 24 books of how, of how you count the, the, the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Um, and so that's going to be why the Protestants are, Protestants don't include it is for that reason. 
but Catholics do include it because, well, it's in the translation of the Hebrew Bible, these seven books are also included in it. Um, it could be, though, that the Apocrypha is separate books and they are written in Greek and at a much later date and sure. they just included it in there. But that's up for debate. We don't know that for sure. Um, and so I don't think we should include the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha um, into the Old Testament because it doesn't seem that the Hebrews included it into their Old Testament. Mm. Um, they had 24 books. Again, they, they count it differently. Um, but I like saying 24 because it makes more sense with the number 12 and that uh, being <laughs> an emphasis. Um, they just, they just take all the, the ones that we separate, you know, first and second Samuel, first, second Kings, first, second, so make that all, all into just one, you know, so there's the Samuels, there's Kings, there's Chronicles. They have the scroll of the five. They count all the minor prophets, you know, so like it's, um, they, they can get down to 24, but they don't include the Apocrypha in, in their Hebrew Bible. Yeah. And since we are, as we see in the new Testament, we are saying we are not um, detached from the story of God. We are part of the story of God culminating into Jesus. So we need to, sh we want to share the same books as mm. our Hebrew forefathers. And so that's why I think Protestants are going to lean towards saying, no, nah, the Apocrypha is not supposed to be part of our Old Testament. But I don't think that means that these books are non-important. Right. Um, as I think, first of all, um, they come up in the New Testament. Um, I think uh, straight up the Pseudepigrapha is going to be quoted um, in the book of Jude. Um, so book of Enoch which is might might be the funnest of <laughs> all the books uh, is yeah, going to be straight sure. up quoted in the book of Jude. Yeah, um, and so I don't think we can say, well, Burnham or you know Shredham, <laughs> anything like that. But I think we can say no. There are inspired books, and then there are helpful books, mm. and the canon of the Old Testament, New Testament are inspired books. Um, I think the early church thought about it in the sense of these are the books that we use for worship. This is this is what we use for worship. Mm. Um, and the helpful books are just, they're helpful. Um, and I do think some people go towards these books for even helping with like spirituality and the Christian, Christian walk. Um, I don't go that route, but I, I do think they're helpful in understanding the culture and the imagination of the Jewish people in the first century uh, where Jesus and the early church is starting. Yeah. That's really helpful for you to describe that kind of a more nuanced approach that it's not this either or of like either we include it as scripture and treat it like the Old New Testament or we ignore it, get rid of it, burn it, denounce it. That there's there's an in-between way where we say these are helpful and we should be familiar with them because in all likelihood Jesus was familiar with a lot of these books and his original audience was familiar with these books. And so there's times when he may be referencing them or pulling ideas from them, just as I could pull an idea from Pilgrim's Progress, expecting, you know, a modern Western audience to, to, to catch that reference because it's a popular work that's been helpful to a lot of people over the past few centuries. So, yeah, that's, that's really, really helpful. And it's unfortunate there is this taboo sometimes, I think. I think, I don't know about your guys' experience, but growing up kind of being not explicitly, but maybe implicitly discouraged from from exploring those books. 
Yeah. Um, maybe because of that tension of like, well, the Catholic and Orthodox traditions include them and we don't. And so we don't want to like, we don't want to back down from that, you know, as opposed to having this more nuanced approach. But I mean, you, you teach students who are growing up in churches and then coming to university and maybe, maybe being exposed to these books for the very first time. And so what, what are some of the reactions of those students as you, or how do you go about beginning to expose them to, to say the Apocrypha? Yeah, there's, there's a range. So I taught this senior level class. Um, this would have been, uh, 2023, um, January to May. And in this class, we dive into, uh, the, the, the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha. Don't dive into every single book, but they have to read quite a bit of it. Um, and they had to give me their thoughts and they had to think through it, uh, from an interpretation lens of how does this help you read the old Testament, new Testament better. Um, and I didn't think to ask this until the end of the semester. Probably should have asked it at the very beginning, but it was my first time teaching the class. <laughs> so I asked them at the very end, kind of like two weeks left of the class as we're discussing one of the books. And I don't remember which book it was, but I said, like, um, what's been like y'all's thoughts on these books? And like, oh man, these these books are crazy. Just like never, never heard of them before. And this into like, like reading them. Um, some started to say we were not allowed to even talk about these books. So not like, let alone read it. We did, we couldn't even talk about it. Um, it came across to me that I'm paraphrasing that some of them grew up in churches where these books were like of the devil, like apocrypha means like hidden truth. And so or to be hidden away, I guess, not, not not necessarily truth, but to be hidden away. And so you can interpret that. There could be two meanings with it, you know. It could mean, as I just kind of alluded to, maybe my way of thinking about it is hidden truth, that there's something hidden that this book is helping reveal. That's what our idea of, like, apocalyptic literature does. Something's hidden, this is revealing it. Um, or you could take it as, no, these books are to be hidden away and not read at all. And that is how um, many of my students were taught. Um, and again, it's very brief. It's not like they have a, a you know sermon on it, but they just pick it up. These books, you don't touch them because they're not, they're not um, according to scripture and therefore they lead you away. They're antithetical to scripture. And I just wanna say, no, no, that's not, that's not what these books are. I'm not saying that they all are going to correspond with what scripture says, um, but they're not necessarily antithetical to scripture. Um, I would say most of the people, most of the authors of the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha love scripture. Like they love the Old Testament. So they love the Hebrew Bible. So they're not trying to write something to go against it. That doesn't make any sense um, as a Jewish person li living in that time. So some of my students, they thought it was, they, that they uh, they were raised to think these books are antithetical to the Old Testament and uh, the gospel. And so, but by the end of the class, they were thinking, no, like we, we should read these books and that they actually are helpful for interpretation, which I really liked. Um, if I, if I was talking to someone who didn't have to take my class, but maybe, maybe they heard Matthew is teaching the Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha, how dare, and they come from this type of context, I would tell them, I understand that. Um, I would probably start by saying, well, 
because Protestants like starting with the Bible. So I would start with the Bible and I think I would go through um, particularly the New Testament because it's going to be where I'm a little bit uh, better at with references to these books. Um, and I, I would go I would go through that and say Jude straight up quotes from first Enoch. I think a debate that Jesus gets into with the Sadducees is straight up an allusion to the book of Tobit. I don't think you can understand why um, Jesus' disciples carry around swords whenever he is um, betrayed and he's they go to capture him and Peter brings out his sword and cuts off the dude's ear. I don't think you, you might just think Peter's being Peter in that moment, or you can think, no, they're carrying around swords because they, they think Jesus is going to do something that requires swords, right? So like, I think that they think of this physical rebellion. And I think you understand that, that, that way of thinking, if you understand like first and second Maccabees. Um, so I would probably start that way of saying there are allusions, quotes, and very helpful um, corresponding um, um, texts. Secondly, then I would probably go to church history and say the early church, like during like the time after the apostles, they didn't think poorly of these books. Um, Origen, who's going to be a pretty early church father, speaks really well of the Old Testament Apocrypha and thinks that these are books that are good for for learning. Um, Martin Luther, if you want to go to jump forward, who is, you know, going to be the person that you would think of as being done away with, you know, Catholicism and anything that they stood for. He doesn't, yeah, include it into his Bible um, in his translation of, of the Bible, but he still actually does see these books as like helpful. And so Calvin, Luther, the reformers, they didn't think these books were supposed to be burned. They just thought we don't use them for worship. Um, they, they're there for something else. So that's going to be how my students respond to it. Um, and that's kind of that's normally how I try to dispel any of these um these anxious feelings about using or it's even opening these books. So in terms, if they're not used for worship, what are some other kind of functional ways we should interact differently with it? Like, I guess maybe this goes back to your first question of what's the nature of scripture? <laughs> like what is, what sets apart a text and how we interact with it? that deems it scripture where something else like say first, second Maccabees, you know, we interact differently with it. <clears throat> what, what is that kernel kind of, of difference? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let me give you, uh, maybe two fast answers with it and you can decide which one we should go down, down more. But <laughs> my, again, with scripture, I'm going to, we're, we're making a pretty big claim with the, you know, uh, Old Testament, New Testament saying it is from God. That's a pretty big claim to say that these books that are written by humans originate in the the will of God. And that's that's going to be part of my theology of scripture is that scripture ultimately goes towards the will of God and it is written with a, a collaborative person um, that is going mm. to, in in some way, further the will of God. Um, which means we would say the spirit is the one that is behind this. 
I want to be careful of not putting words into God's mouth that God does not want there, right? Or And, and so that's why I'm going to put these books in a different place and not saying this comes from the will of God. Uh, now, could they, though, um, reinforce or be in agreement with the will of God, right? So they make a reference to an Old Testament passage and they expound upon that, or they at least help us understand how that human author thinks about that passage. Most certainly it could. Yeah. But I don't go to the Apocrypha looking for what the Spirit has to tell me right now, right? I don't look, I don't go to the Apocrypha to understand Jesus in the sense of his nature, right? Or how the story was hmm. leading to him. I go to it instead to learn about, and this is the second part answer, so how do we interact with these books to understand how Jewish thinkers thought during this time to help us understand more about the Old Testament and the New Testament, in particular, Jesus. So they're all interpreting the Old Testament. These are, they're not, you know, explicitly commentaries of the Old Testament, but they're, in, they're interpretations of, of the Old Testament. Um, they're interacting with certain stories and then they're giving their thoughts to them. And that's helpful for us as we approach these books that we are very distant from. Yeah. So these people are closer to the time of the Old Testament. They're uh, more knowledgeable of the culture. And so we can learn from them about what is potentially taking place in the Old Testament. Um, so that's going to be kind of how, how I go about it. Mm -hmm. Canon is, this is from the spirit of God. Um, the spirit is the author of these books. Like we're, and I think we just should recognize how crazes and crazy and audacious of a claim that is. And so let's just not include willy-nilly any books within this and so yeah. if there was um if we see the hebrew people or the early church saying no these aren't part of our you know books then i say we we don't we don't include them but again they help us with interpretation nevertheless and so i think that we should read them and know them um let me just give you an example here of yeah. how do they help with interpretation um so in my first uh, kind of venture into um, studying this stuff, uh, I Abraham plays a huge role, of course, um, in the Old Testament, but he plays a huge role when it comes to hospitality. Yeah. Um, the Old Testament is very clear about this in Genesis 18 that he when, when the moment that he is blessed and told that he will have Isaac is a moment of hospitality. He saw three strangers. He didn't know that they were divine. He didn't know God was in the midst of them, but he gets up, he runs to them, bows down to them, and invites them into his home, right? So, and then it's through this conversation that eventually he is blessed and Isaac is promised. Um, and so Abraham plays a huge role um, in hospitality. You end up seeing um, throughout the Old Testament that hospitality scenes. So these moments where someone's received in furthers the covenant of God. So Genesis 18, the covenant's furthered because in this moment, Abraham and Sarah, who are well beyond the years of making children are promised they will have a child and his name will be Isaac. So this hospitality scene is now connected with the covenant prospering. This picks up again though, whenever Isaac is born and of course becomes 
<clears throat> a man, and does not have a wife, and Abraham is about to die, you should begin to start feeling like anxious about this because the mm. covenant might die off. If Isaac is not married and he has no children, the promise of God to Abraham dies off with, with Isaac. But what happens, Abraham sends uh, his servant to um, a land and he meets Rebecca, a woman at a well, and he's received in by her. So it's hospitality. In that moment, Mm -hmm. once again, the covenant prospers. She goes on to become Mm. his his wife. We see this the same thing with Jacob. We'll see this with Joseph. It's all about wells, which is really weird. Um, But (laughs) it makes sense in the sense of where they're placed in the village and stuff like that. But what you see is for the Old Testament, hospitality is attached to the covenant prospering. Yeah. Covenant prospers at, with hospitality. But when you get to the Second Temple Jewish literature, that theme of Abraham is still there um, and covenant prospering is there. But they begin to introduce a distinction of who you're supposed to show hospitality to. And so you are not just supposed to show hospitality to anyone, according to to Second Temple Jewish literature. Um, you'll even come across texts, um, like Job will be talking, again, Job, quote, quote, unquote. He'll be talking and say, I show hospitality to everyone. I have 30 tables in my home for strangers. And you're like, wow, look how inclusive like this dude is. And, uh, and again, how inclusive... Jewish people are in this time writing, writing this text, they, they not, not just Jewish people, but Gentiles, any stranger, it would be what a modern person thinks. But no, if you keep reading the Testament of Job, you'll come across a text of Job talking to his sons and he tells his sons, do not accept strangers. And in that sense, he is talking particularly about Greeks. He says, hmm. do not intermarry with Greeks and do not receive them in. Mm. So there is, there's a category now of who hospitality is for. And this is why when you come on to the New Testament, um, you do not see much interaction between Jewish people and Gentiles in hospitality um, situations. Huh. Not like they don't interact with one another, but they do not share table fellowship um, with one another because of purity and because they think the covenant will only prosper if they can maintain their you know, um, Israelites connection and not intermarrying. So old Testament is covenant prospering, right? Second temple, Jewish literature, covenant prospers. And we're being going to be exclusive about who we show hospitality to. So Jesus shows up on the scene and he ends up interacting with people and being received in by people and himself receiving people who would be, um, outside the bounds of what Second Temple Jewish literature thought would have been okay to show hospitality to. Mm-hmm. And so when you see Jesus um, being uh, in a house of a Pharisee who invited him in, and then a woman comes in there and she's, you know, comes across as being maybe a prostitute, not really sure, um, but a woman of the night, whatever you, way you want, want to uh, de- de- designate her as. And she comes into the scene and begins to serve him, wash his feet, which is very much hospitality language. Yeah. He, and he's allowing her to receive him. Like that's, that's this moment of 
this is not okay. And this is why the Pharisee, you know, uh, Simon reacts the way that he reacts to Jesus in that moment. So it helps you understand, again, interpretation, Jesus's, um, Jesus, matter of fact, intentionally receives and is received by the rejected people that Second Temple Jewish literature says you're not supposed to receive in. And so he flips the table to use um, to use Acts. He, he turns the world upside down in that moment. So I'll say this one more thing and then allow, uh, of course, for me to stop talking. Um, I tell my students this. We should not assume that the Jew- Jewish people of the first century think the same way as Hebrews did in the ancient Near East. Hmm. They are the same. They are connected. Like clearly one is the ancestor, one one ones are, are the descendants. So we're not going to act like they're not connected and that they don't have a, a shared train of thought. But that would be like us thinking people in the United States today think the same as our forefathers who came from Britain or France or Spain. Like, no, there's clearly connection and we clearly share values, um, same same values, but we've we've changed as a culture. Yeah. And so yeah. Second Temple Jewish literature helps us understand a little bit more about that culture. It's a good illustration. Yeah, what some of those changes are, specifically with hospitality. And and also probably maybe some of the background of why those changes happened. I mean, reading Maccabees and other seeing the, some of the things that the the people suffered at the hands of their Greek overlords kind of gives you some, you know, like compassion and understanding. You're like, well, I get why they wouldn't want to invite uh, someone into their home who they see as being connected to this empire that came in and, and crushed and, and destroyed and oppressed and like some of the reasoning behind it. But again, like yeah. you said, makes Jesus's stance even more radical and powerful that he's yep. pushing against kind of that development that's been going on over those past you know centuries of becoming more and more exclusive with hospitality he stands up and says no this isn't actually what we're supposed to be doing if we we go back to the torah we go back to our books we see that we're supposed to be including people in our hospitality that's that's great man uh, thanks for that illustration yeah and that's i think the the idea of compassion and sympathy empathy um, for even the le- even the listeners of Jesus, um, of how their what their reactions are to him, it, it just makes more sense yeah. when you understand the context. Um, I would recommend anyone to read First Maccabees just to understand oh, yeah. the um, just to understand um, the tension that is totally there between Jews in Palestine and Gentiles. And even if, uh, you know, so in first Maccabees, you have, of course, um, uh, the Syrians, um, taking over Palestine and they just do some pretty terrible things. So they outlaw circumcision, not allowed to circumcise your children. If you do, those children will be captured, killed, and we get depicted of women having to mothers having to carry their dead sons, uh, corpses like on their neck and walk around. And so this is, this is their type of interaction with Gentiles and especially, um, empires. And so it's not surprising to see the hostility, um, between Gentiles, specifically Romans, 
um, and Jews in Palestine. And therefore, you can kind of understand why Jesus's message is so radical and so hard to get behind. So it, it once again, I think it helps me just not to think poorly, but to think, no, like this makes sense. If you've had this experience that, that we see within those 400 years of silence. Yeah. And helps, helps us understand the kind of Messiah that maybe people were waiting for and why Jesus didn't exactly fit that mold that like you have, you have the example of uh, the Maccabees, the Maccabean, you know, family that did revolt and and brought independence for a time, and you can see why people in Jesus' day would be hoping for the same thing in regards to the Romans. And um, I guess Josephus would be helpful there too, because he gives some of the background of the time shortly before Jesus of what kinds of things were going on with the Romans and the Jews and. Yeah, that's all really, really, really helpful. Let me just, uh, I guess we've maybe said a few times, but um, again, these moments where the Apocrypha or Pseudepigrapha are referenced in the New Testament, I just think that's really key just to say, he, he, here are some examples sure. that in knowing these books, you will be able to interpret the Bible better. And I hope that at the end of the day, that's what we want to do. I think for ministry, that's yeah. That's key. As we're teaching and pastoring and serving, we want to understand the Bible more. Of course, we should be humble and say we're not going to completely understand it, but um, we want to search it. We want to understand it to, to, the, to the most of our, our capability. So <clears throat> here's some examples real fast um, of some that uh, stand out for me and most pertinent. So uh, Jude will reference uh in my opinion, uh, explicitly two different um, pseudepigraphal works. Um, so Jude is a crazy book regardless of. And um, <laughs> so he doesn't even have to reference these other things. He's just crazy to begin with. Um, but he will re- he will straight up quote from the book of Enoch, which is if is a character in um, Genesis who we know walks with God, as, 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 as the text says, and doesn't seem to die necessarily. Um, and so we kind of pick up um, in the book of Enoch on what takes place with, with this uh, person, Enoch. And we just get a lot of um, interpretation on the book of Genesis and what God is up to. And so um, Jude will straight up quote um, from the book of Enoch. He will also make this really strange moment where he says, um, we are to, um, rebuke those who are false teachers, just like Michael, the archangel rebuked Satan whenever they were fighting over the body of Moses. So you have to be like, what? <laughs> so I tell my students, go to Deuter- go to Deuteronomy, show me where that happens. Right. Yeah. And of course it's not there. And so this is some sort of tradition um, that pe- that Jewish people are thinking about of when Moses died, that there was this battle between Satan and God, and in particular one of his angels, over Moses' body. Um, and so we have this reference um, in Jude. And so Jude thinks these books are important. Mm-hmm. And the apostles think these books are important. So I think we should think that they are important. So Judah, of course, is the funnest one to, to, to think about. Um, another example would be the book of, or, yeah, I guess the book of Tobit, which is probably my favorite. Um, oh, great book. <clears throat> I love Tobit. Such a good book. I named my cat after Tobit. <laughs> His name is Tobit. 
I have I have two cats, Tobit and Judith, named after apocryphal books. <clears throat> we call them Toby and Judy. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I love Toby. Again, the hospitality stuff is um, all, is all over that. Um, again, you notice that um, in Tobit, uh, when Tobias is told to um, go on a journey, he's looking for who he should go on a journey with, and he's in Nineveh. So this is full of Gentiles, but he doesn't just go up to anyone. He has to find a fellow Israelite to go on this journey with. And so lo and behold, ends up being Raphael, an angel disguised um, as an Israelite, which is just crazy. And I think that's the reason why we just don't know what to do with these books. What do you, so Raphael, is this an angel? Is this an archangel? What do we do with Raphael? And the Ninja Turtle. Yeah, it's a Ninja Turtle. <laughs> the artist, like what's going on right now, you know? Um, but again, it's like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to say Raphael is, um, is an angel who uh, does all these different things for God. Uh, because I don't think Raphael shows up. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the name Raphael even shows up at all. Um, and if he does, it certainly doesn't show up as an angel, I think, um, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Regardless of, um, he shows up disguised as an Israelite, and that is why yeah. he's allowed to be accepted in by Tobit and Tobias and then go on this journey. Um, but Tobit has this story of, uh, Tobias going on this journey to, uh, one of his distant relatives and he finds out that, um, the woman that he is going to marry, um, she has been betrothed like multiple times and the husband has died by a demon who keeps killing him on the night before that they can actually consummate the marriage. Isn't this just an awesome story, Denver? I like, know. Yeah, yeah. Denver, have you read this book? Read it to your children at night, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's like a Doctor Who episode or something. It's so, uh, so okay, so, and I think it's seven husbands that she has and that they die. So you have this random moment in the Gospels of Jesus in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and Jesus has already, you know, told the Pharisees, don't, don't challenge me on my, you know, knowledge of the Bible and of God, because he just checks them. Um, and then the Sadducees are like, all right, I got next. So they pop up and they're like, let me give you an example, Jesus. There was a woman and she had a husband and he died. And then his brother married her and he died. And then this happened seven times when she dies in the resurrection who will she be married to? Yeah. And of course, I think uh, they one, one of the gospels says, because Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection, yeah. right? So you're, <laughs> you a nice little helpful t- tidbit there. But Jesus' response is kind of fun in that moment because he's not like, wait, how many husbands does she have? And what are the logistics of this? Right? I think it's because it's a clear reference hmm. to Tobit and Jesus already knows this story and he's just able, and again, I don't think it's about the interpretation of this book, but they're, that they just know the story. It's just right. in their psyche. It's in yeah. their imagination. It's assumed. And so we shouldn't be getting like boiled, like, oh, what, where, are they just making up a story? No, they're totally taking a story that apparently every Jewish person knows this story, right? So this is another, another example there. Um, yeah. Can I give one more example and then yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll shut up. But this is, this is one that I, I really love. Um, Luke, uh, Luke 10, Jesus says, or is approached by um, someone and says, where's the greatest commandments? And he tells him, well, you know what it is. You've read the Bible. You know what it is. Guy says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus is like, yeah, you got it. Go, go, <laughs> go and do it. Then the guy's response is what? Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus goes into talking about the parable, the good Samaritan. <laughs> there is a book um, within the Apocrypha called um, Sirach. Um, and in Sirach, Sirach is, is poetry. It's wisdom literature. So it feels very much like um, Proverbs, um, same type of genre of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Um, and so it's this wisdom being laid down. And in Sirach 12, chapter 12, verse 1 through 7, he lays out who are neighbors, mm. who are our neighbors. And, and so he, and he's saying you are to love particular people, show love to particular people who are not who your neighbors are, right? And so I think that's going to be the reason why this person asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? This mm. is such a weird question to ask. Well, who is that person? You should just assume it's anyone around you is your neighbor. But no, they're not assuming that because they have a book here that's literally tell, telling them there are certain people who are your neighbors and hmm. there are certain people who are not your neighbor. It is not therefore surprising that Jesus therefore goes into a parable on some on a Samaritan who they do not consider their neighbors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that ends up being the hero of his story in that moment. So once again, helps us understand why this person is asking that question and why Jesus responds to the question with this parable on a Samaritan. Yeah, that's really good. Those are great examples. And I'm hoping, you know, I hope as our listeners are are hearing some of these references and stories that their interest is being um, pricked and uh, maybe they have a desire to read some of these books for the first time or explore this, mm-hmm. um, see the value in it, um, but maybe they don't know where to start. And obviously, yeah. one starting place is to to read the books themselves. Uh, but for those of us that, who don't have the pleasure of sitting in your class, Matt, and having you guide us uh, through these books, uh, do you have any recommendations of resources um, whether that's books or otherwise, that can kind of help be a guide to people who want to get into these books, um, help them understand, you know, what what's this book about and and when was it written, what are some of the themes, just helpful stuff like that. Yeah, most definitely. So um, let me give three um, three different resources here. One, this would be my introduction to it. It's just got a, there's just a chapter in a book called Origin of the Bible. And there's a chapter where this guy, it's an edited work and a guy just deals with the Old Testament and New Testament apocryphal. So we didn't talk anything about the New Testament apocrypha, which is not uh, something that, that we were supposed to talk about. Um, but there is, uh, there are uh, a collection of books called the New Testament apocrypha. That book is, uh, that chapter is awesome because it lays out all these books and it gives summaries of what these books address and talk about. So origins of the Bible, there's a chapter titled, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, Apocrypha. Um, I, though, that's just going to be one way of looking at summaries. Um, if you wanted a book that's entirely on it, which I think would be great, I would go to Introducing the Apocrypha. Introducing the Apocrypha. The guy that really helped me, um, I was never hostile towards these books, but someone yeah. that just kind of helped me be a little bit more like, no, I should want to read these books, um, was a guy named David De Silva. And so he um, is a great professor, um, I believe taught or teaches at Asbury, correct me if I'm wrong, but- Or Ashland, one of those, right? Ashland, that sounds 
I don't know. It's probably Ashland. Anyway, um, his name's De Silva, David De Silva. Um, yeah. And he's done a lot of work on the Apocrypha. And so he has a book called Introducing the Apocrypha. He has a lot of just videos on it, too. Oh, great. That if someone doesn't like necessarily to read, just YouTubing him and hearing his thoughts are, it's just really good. And he kind of goes through the, just the history of why, of where, of how we got to where we're at. Um, if they're looking for something that's a little bit more heady, um, I would recommend, um, oh man, I'm blanking on the name of it. Uh, maybe we could put in the show notes or something like that, but, sure. um, there, there is a, just a collection of the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, um, by a guy named Charles, um, uh, Charlesworth. What is it? James Charlesworth. There you go. That's it. Yes. Um, though, those things are awesome because there's com- there's some comments on it at the very beginning yeah. and kind of talks about the, the dating of them. It is very in the weeds. So like, like <laughs> there are times where I'm reading, I'm like, okay, I just want to read the book. So like, <laughs> let's move on. But yeah, um, those are super helpful and they have indexes as well, which is great for me. Um, so I can look up hospitality and just see it. Yeah. Right. Um, but those are going to be um, great as well. That's awesome. Those are awesome. some great places for people to get started. Um, and if people want to just get the text, I believe if you have like the, you know, the U version app, the the Bible app, if you just open the Catholic edition of the NRSV, you, know, you should be able to access the, yeah. the, the actual the text themselves that way without having yeah. to buy anything, um, which is great. Yeah. But then, yeah. Don't int- buy these books. <laughs> books are public domain. <laughs> Public domain, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bible Gateway as well. They have it um, on there. So if you just typed into Google, you'd be able to pull it all up. Um, but I think these, again, I want to understand what did people think as much as we can. We can't get into their minds. We're not trying to act like we can know exactly what they thought. But in the same sense, if I can understand 21st century America through its movies that it makes and its books that it's writing, these books help us understand what they're thinking, what questions they're wrestling with. And I think Jesus responds to these questions. And that is why some people flock to him. And it's it's also going to be the same reason why some people flee from him and want to kill him. Yeah. Because he's answering these questions that everyone's asking. And either you love his answer or you don't like his answer. Um, so that's why I think these books are super helpful. Appreciate it, man. Yeah. That's a great lens with it, with which to read them. Um, a great approach. A lot better than the let's burn them approach. They're, they're of the devil approach. Um, so hopefully people will get um, get an interest in, and open it up and start reading. I'll just plug one more resource. Yeah. Because, <clears throat> and... Um, she was interviewed on OnScript about this book. It was called Discovering Second Temple Literature yeah. by Malka Simkovich. And um, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read portions. And it's it's a great kind of introduction and overview of a lot of those. Oh, great. Uh, a lot of the literature from that as well. And there's an OnScript episode if you're more of a podcast listener. You can listen to that as well. What is, real fast, lightning, what is your favorite Second Temple book. Oh yeah, I was gonna ask you. Mine was Tobit. Mine is Tobit. Tobit. I mean, I. It's just such a cool story. But not Judith, even though you also love. I Judith. do like you, Judith as well. But you put Tobit above it. Yeah, I. I mean, I, I. When we were having our third child, if it was a boy, 
I was trying to convince my wife to name him <laughs> and no one was getting on board. No one. <laughs> but I was like, you have to read this story though. This story is so, so good. amazing. <laughs> you just call him Toby and no one knows Toby. it. I know it's Tobit, but yeah. you just call him Toby. Yeah. yeah, people just think of the office. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's that the office has spoiled Toby's for us. But I do think to your point, Maccabees is such an important book to <laughs> read. For the historical backdrop yeah. of the New Testament that I think is just so valuable. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, as far as usefulness, I feel like <clears throat> Maccabees for me has been the most useful just because it helps fill in this gap of yeah. of history that um, that is just sitting there in between the Testaments that it's helpful to know. Um, as far as what I found the most interesting, I'd probably say there's a section of Enoch. I don't remember if it's first Enoch. Or a second Enoch, but there's a section called the Animal Apocalypse. Poodle. And it like basically it tells this basically like the story of Israel is told through um like animals. And so like different people are represented by different animals. It's I just I found it fascinating like to see like what animals they picked for different characters and different it, it was I thought that was really interesting, the animal apocalypse. That's fascinating. Yes. Yeah, I think Michael Heiser actually has a commentary on the books of Enoch that's supposedly super helpful. I never gave myself time yeah. to look into it, but I mean, we need that. We need to. It's it's hard to understand some sort of help without. It, yeah, without some seriously, help. it is. Yeah. What about you, Matt? Favorite book? Um, but uh, so let me say this: since since uh, Taylor said Toby, even though I would, I would go with that as well, uh, let me throw another one out here. And it's called. Uh, I might be mispronouncing the name but it's joseph and aseneth mm. um or as aseneth it's this the woman that he marries yeah, the egyptian um, woman in egypt joseph the king of dreams if there's the reference there um and so it is a book on on how is it okay for joseph to marry an egyptian and they just kind of wrestle. So you have all your favorite things there. You have hospitality. You have Jew, Jewish and Gentile issues, and you have angels. And so <clears throat> it's just a lot of fun. Uh, but once again, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's it's a great book, and I think that's written. Some people wonder if it was actually written after the New Testament, and if there's some actually interaction huh. between the New Testament and it. Interesting. But uh, Joseph and Asenith is a pretty fun book. Okay. Well, maybe uh, at some point we can have you back on again to talk to us about the New Testament Apocrypha. Yeah. Some of the books written by Jesus followers that didn't make it into our our canon. That would be a, a great follow-up conversation. But for now, we want to thank you for your time, Matt. Thank you for your expertise, your knowledge, your wisdom, spending time with us and our listeners. We really appreciate it, man. Yeah. Enjoyed it. I always enjoyed talking with you guys. You guys are awesome. And um yeah, I just appreciate the invite. Hey, man. Yeah, and uh, God bless you and your ministry to the students there at uh, Ozark Christian College. Thank you, guys. concludes our episode and thanks again for listening. The Learning Laborers exist to create an intentional space for ministry experience and scholarship to overlap. 
We want to thank everyone who supports us and helps make the podcast possible. And if you are interested in supporting these efforts, check out our Patreon, where you can join us by giving as little as $3 per month. Our hope is that more laborers, more ministry leaders, can feel resourced to point people to Jesus through their study of Scripture. Continue to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts.